Would you pray with me again this morning, please? Father, we have, over these days and weeks, been reminded of the frailty, the feeble nature of life. Father, we find, we find during this time a range of emotions, fear, anxiety, discouragement, depression. And yet, Father, I would pray for your people, for my brothers and sisters, for all of us, that this would be a time of renewed hope in Christ as well. That, Father, in the midst of all of this that is so new, so uncertain, so confusing to us, that we would never be allowed to take our eyes off of Christ seated at the right hand of your majesty and glory. Father, our prayer during this time is that we would be encouraged from your word and that as a result of that we would be an encouragement to others. But Father, I pray especially for my church family this morning that we would be encouraged through your spirit, through your word, through Christ in us, the hope of glory. Bless this time, Father, now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, with your Bibles, if you would, take them and, uh, and open them, please, to Luke chapter 22. We're at the final verses of Luke chapter 22, making our way into chapter 23. This is, of course, as Pastor Gordon mentioned earlier, Palm Sunday, it is a day of remembrance of our Lord entering into Jerusalem. We, we read the passage and we looked at that passage of Jesus entering into Jerusalem back in Luke chapter 19. And everything that has taken place from there until where we are and moving forward in Luke's gospel takes place within the span of a week's time. It is the triumphal entry of Jesus riding into Jerusalem, his encounters with the religious leaders and the questions back and forth with them, the miracles that he performed, the teaching that he gave. And now we've seen him arrested, denied by Peter, deserted by his followers. We began to look at it last week when Jesus was arrested. He was arrested at night. And in verse 63, down through verse 65 of Luke chapter 22, we find Jesus undergoing a series of beatings. We don't know how long the beatings took place. We don't know the full extent of them. We do know that, that throughout this time of his arrest and the mockeries of trials that he endured, he was beaten relentlessly to the point that we're told by the prophet that his visage was marred beyond our comprehension. He, he, was, he was unrecognizable as he was on the cross. And to go through what he went through, even the beatings, then leading up to the trials that he endured, arrested that evening, tried uh, in the home of the high priest. It, it was against Jewish law for something of that nature to happen, and yet it happened anyway. And then the next morning, after the beatings, he was taken before the Sanhedrin. They passed judgment upon him. Then he was transported to Pilate, and then he was taken to Herod, and then back to Pilate. And it, it was a flurry of activity that we find ourselves in. In, in these passages this morning. 
If you've noticed your worship booklet, you will notice that I've titled the message this morning, Leaders Before Jesus. It's usually seen the other way. Even in, in some of the notations in your scripture, you will find Jesus before the council, or Jesus before Pilate, or Jesus before Herod. But this is actually not the case at all. It was not that Jesus was appearing before them. It is in reality they were appearing before Jesus. In fact, in John's gospel, we have more of the details of Jesus' encounter with Pilate and the questioning that took place there. Pilate at one point said to Jesus, don't you know that I have the authority to release you or I have the authority to crucify you? And Jesus, in full recognition of who he is, And who Pilate is, looks at Pilate and responds saying, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. And so Jesus makes it abundantly clear that he is under the authority only of his father. And Pilate has no authority over him except that authority as well. Jesus is the one who is still throughout the midst of all of this in full control of the situation. None of these trials, mockeries that they were, is actually Jesus before anyone. He still, in all authority, makes them stand before him, and in doing so, their fates are sealed. If you would, looking at Luke's gospel, chapter 22, there are three interrogations that take place within the gospel record here that Luke has for us. The first one, Jesus is appearing before the religious leaders, before the Sanhedrin. We read about it in Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 66. Read it along with me this morning. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Here in this first interrogation, Jesus appears before the Sanhedrin. It was a type of of Jewish ruling body, had supreme authority and power over the Jewish faith and behavior with obvious limits imposed by Rome that, uh, that really occupied the region politically. There were specific rules laid down as to how a trial of this nature was was to be handled. Nearly all of those rules were broken in the trial of Jesus. First of all, of course, Jesus was tried without a defense. That never would have been allowed uh, before the Sanhedrin in any other situation. The verdict was given in the space of a day. Having having arrested him that evening, he appears before the high priest privately in the home of the high priest, again in violation of the law of the Sanhedrin. And then he comes the next morning, early that morning before this body, and the verdict comes against him in the space of one day. The law of the Sanhedrin required that there would be a verdict that would be given, a day that would pass, and then on the third day there would be a reconvening to determine the finality of the verdict that was given. Again, a rule that was broken. 
Also within all of this, the high priest was not to speak. The verdict came by polling the members of the Sanhedrin, starting with those of the younger and then moving up to the oldest among them. Again, the entirety of the rules broken. Also, a trial of this nature was not to take place at night. You will remember, however, that this trial did start at night, right after the arrest of Jesus. And now it continues on into the day. Imagine the exhaustion that Jesus already feels at what is taking place in his life. He's been with the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. There he prayed in great anguish of heart and soul, so that it were his, his, he sweat as it were drops of blood, Luke tells us. And then the arrest comes, then the beating comes, and then he appears before the Sanhedrin. When you read the account of the Sanhedrin and their interrogation of Jesus, there are three titles for Jesus that show up within all of this. We find the first one given to us in verse 67. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. The word is Messiah. It is the promised one of God. God, throughout the Old Testament, gave the promise that one was going to come who would be the redeemer of his people, who would deliver his people. So the Sanhedrin come along and they essentially say to Jesus, if you are the one that is promised by God, just tell us. And of course, Jesus responds to them by saying, if I tell you, you're not going to believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. We've already experienced this in the questioning of Jesus. If, If you go back just a couple of chapters, back to Luke chapter 20, you find this very same sort of thing happening. That one day, Jesus, having arrived in Jerusalem, he's teaching the people in the temple, preaching the gospel to them, and here come these same groups of religious leaders. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders came up, and they said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? Jesus answered them and said, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus has already encountered this very group of religious leaders, and they ask him, are you the Christ? Jesus has made it abundantly clear that he is the Christ in what he has done, in what he has said, even in his preaching and teaching related to them. And yet he says, if I tell you, you're not going to believe me. And if I ask you, you will not answer It's a way for Jesus to say, it's irrelevant the questions that you ask me. I've already answered this question. I've made it clear by what I have done, and yet you have refused to believe in who I am. And then Jesus makes this astounding statement. This is the second of the three titles of Jesus that we find here. First of all, Christ, the Messiah, the promised one of God. And then he says in verse 69, But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. This title, Son of Man, was Jesus' favorite designation of himself. It is not just indicative of his humanity, even though he is that, fully God, fully man, together in one. 
It has much, much deeper meaning than this. And everyone listening to Jesus knew exactly what it was to which Jesus was referring. It takes us back in the Old Testament again to the Old Testament book of Daniel, the prophecy of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, we read this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Jesus, God the Son, before God the Father. And to him, verse 14, this Son of Man, the title that Jesus uses for himself, and to the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. These Jewish leaders knew exactly what Jesus was saying in this. He was claiming to be the very one of whom Daniel spoke, the one who comes with, with dominion, the one who has been given glory, the one who has been given a kingdom. They knew exactly what Jesus meant. This is the reason that they questioned him further. And here you see the third title used of Jesus, verse 70. And they all said, are you the Son of God then? They knew the questions that they were asking. They knew what Jesus was saying within his answers. Are you the Christ? If I tell you, you're not going to believe. If I ask you, you're not going to answer. What is the point of giving you an answer to the question when you already know the answer? But I tell you, you will from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. They knew immediately that Jesus was claiming deity. And so they said, are you then the Son of God? And look at his answer. He said to them, you say that I am. This was not Jesus' way of skirting the issue. This was not Jesus saying, well, that's just what you say. That's just your opinion. No, it was as though Jesus said, you said it. In other words, Jesus is saying to them, yes, I am the Son of God. That explains their response in verse 71. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. They knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. Jesus was claiming to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Redeemer of his people. He was claiming to be the Son of Man, one who has given glory and power and a kingdom, dominion, rulership, and authority over everything. And he claimed to be the Son of God, equal with God. And so in their furor, what more testimony do we need? In other words, in their minds, he has condemned himself. But in reality, by condemning the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God, they were in reality condemning themselves. For when the day came that they stood before God, they would have to acknowledge that they heard exactly who Jesus was, and yet they rejected who Jesus was. And their guilt was compounded by the knowledge they had, and yet the rejection that they held to who Jesus really was. Is that you today? 
You've heard sermons that have been preached. You have heard lessons that have been taught. You know who Christ is, and yet still you are rejecting His authority, His dominion, His power, His rulership over your life. Understand, unless you repent and turn from your sin to Jesus Christ alone, you are heaping up condemnation for yourself. And your only hope is the grace of Jesus Christ alone. In this moment, run to Him in confession of your sin and repentance of heart and life and acknowledge that He is Lord. After His interrogation by the Sanhedrin, there comes a second interrogation in chapter 23. This time, Pilate appears before Jesus. We read in verse 1, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. The Sanhedrin now take Jesus to Pilate. And basically, they don't ask Pilate to, to, to try Jesus. They simply come in with their accusations and ask Pilate to sentence Jesus. The charge by the Sanhedrin was blasphemy. It was blasphemous to claim to be equal with God, unless, of course, you were equal with God. But the Sanhedrin did not have the authority of death. The Romans held that authority, and so now they change the accusations from a religious nature to a political one. There are three accusations that are given here. You read about them in verse 2. We found this man, first of all, misleading our nation. That was a, a tremendous accusation to be made to the Romans. Even when Jesus was a young boy, perhaps around 10 years of age or so, there had, there had been a, a revolution of sorts. There was, there was a man who held to these messianic expectations of himself. He thought that he would be the one who would overthrow the Roman government and lead the Jewish people out of Roman oppression. The Romans acted swiftly and harshly in putting down that rebellion, and this one who was truly misleading the nation. It, it was an event that was not soon forgotten in Rome. It, it, it seemed, in fact, that throughout the history of this time, there were always those who were sparking uh, thoughts of revolution against the Romans, and so the Romans held a tight grip on the area. And so this was a powerful charge to make against Jesus. Secondly, they said that he forbids us to give tribute to Caesar. It's an outright lie. You remember just a, a few sermons ago when Jesus was asked by this very same group of people if it was okay to pay taxes to Caesar. And Jesus took a coin and he said, whose inscription is on this? Caesar's. And so he said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, render to God that which is God's. An outright lie they told to Pilate. Of course, the whole thing was a sham. 
It was all just made up in their minds against Jesus. And then finally, they make the third accusation. He is saying that he himself is Christ, a king. There there was within this a, a mixture of truth and error, if you will. With his own people meeting with them, you will remember the, the, the statement that Peter made when Jesus asked, Who do men say that I am? Peter finally comes along and he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And even as Jesus performed his miracles, you remember so very often he would say to people, Don't go out and repeat this. Because there was such a misunderstanding of the meaning. It was not yet time for what Jesus was seeking to accomplish and what he did accomplish in his death. But when he is gathered together here now, we read of this questioning that comes. We, we read of all of this that is happening. He says that he's a Christ, a king. Again, if you reference back into John's gospel, you will find there some more elaboration upon all of this. Luke shares details. Uh, John shares details. And we get a very good picture when we look at the gospel stories together of what's happened. And during this questioning, and Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? As Luke records for us, and John does as well. Somewhere in the exchange between Pilate and Jesus, Jesus says, Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Understand that Jesus did not come to establish political reality. He came to establish spiritual dominion in the hearts and lives of his people. Pilate doesn't care about any other kingdom. The only kingdom he cares about is is his kingdom, about the Roman kingdom. So finally he looks to the Sanhedrin And he says to them, I find no guilt in this man, verse 4. Basically, Sanhedrin, you're bringing this man to me on political charges, but there aren't any political charges. He's not attempting to overthrow Caesar. For crying out loud, look at him. The beating, I'm sure, had already been extensive by this point. There were no rabble-rousers in the street proclaiming revolution against Rome now that Jesus had been arrested. Overall, things were silent. Pilate says, there's nothing to worry about with this guy. He's not a threat. I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, verse 5, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. The verdict has come that Jesus is innocent. He is declared innocent by the highest authority of Rome in Jerusalem at at this time. It's very interesting to me about Jesus' answers here. What he says to the Sanhedrin, and then what he says to Pilate as well. Uh, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, you have said so. In other words, you said it again. Jesus wants to be very clear on who he is. Why, Why is Jesus being so careful here and very intentional in the way that he's answering these questions? He is doing that because he is not the kind of king that the Sanhedrin was expecting. He is a different kind of king. He he is not trying to kick the Romans out of Judea. He is coming to provide the penalty, the payment for sin. 
He is a king so much greater than any kind of king the Sanhedrin or Pilate could possibly quibble about and argue over. He is a king of much greater significance than either of these two uh, groups of people could have possibly imagined. I wonder at times if, if we somehow make the same kind of mistake. The Sanhedrin was looking for this political ruler. Interesting to me that they were, they were looking for this political ruler who would r- rescue them out of oppression and bondage to Rome, and yet they accused Jesus of doing that very thing that they wanted to have happen. Because Jesus was making it abundantly clear, that is not the purpose of my life here. I am here to redeem fallen sinners. They had a misconception about who Jesus was. Pilate had misconceptions about who he was. There there was no threat by Jesus here. And I wonder if we make the same kind of misconceptions about Jesus. Maybe, Maybe we want to see Jesus as just a deliverer. When our lives get difficult, Jesus, come and rescue me, and then I'll go on with life. Perhaps we want Jesus simply to be a healer. Jesus, in my sickness, provide healing for me, and then I'll go on about my life. Perhaps we want Jesus simply to be a helper to us, but we fail to realize who Jesus really is. He indeed is Christ the King. He's Christ, Son of Man, Son of God. Now we see Him from one interrogation to the second, and now to the third. In verse 5, Pilate hears something that piques his interest. The Sanhedrin say that Jesus is teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Galilee! Oh, I know someone who is a, a smaller ruler than me, Pilate would think. The ruler over Galilee, and it just so happens that he's in Jerusalem at this time. Let me send him to Herod. This is a way out for Pilate. And here's the third interrogation in Luke's gospel. We find it in verse 6 down through verse 12 of chapter 23. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate, Became, became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Herod was the ruler of the Jewish jurisdiction of Galilee. It's where Jesus was from, Nazareth in Galilee. It's not the Herod that you read about in the beginning of, of Luke's gospel. Not, not Herod the Great, who had the children slaughtered after the birth of Jesus. No, this is, this is one of his sons. Shares the name Herod, but he is known as Herod Antipas, one of the sons of Herod the Great. In, in fact, when you read Herod, except in the birth accounts, this is the Herod about which you're reading. Herod Antipas had a half-brother 
by the name of Philip. And once, when Herod Antipas was in Rome, Philip's wife, Herodias, caught his eye. And so Herod had an affair with his brother's wife. To convolute things even more than that, Herodias was not just Philip's wife, she was also Herod Antipas's niece. And so what a tangled web of family dynamics going on here together. Herodias, the niece and the half-step sister to Herod, agrees to marry him if he will divorce his wife. Now that plays a big portion into the life of Herod recorded in Scripture for us because we're told that this Herod would often go to hear John the Baptist preach. He, he, he was mesmerized by his teaching, doing nothing with the teaching, just loved to hear the sermons, I suppose. And John the Baptist spoke out against Herod publicly, that what a sham it was and disgraceful that he would marry his brother's wife, his own niece. And so Herod had John the Baptist thrown into jail. What's interesting about that is that at one point, Herod Antipas was throwing a great banquet. And the daughter of his wife, Herodias, comes out to dance before all the people. Not, not, not ballet dance, not ballroom dancing. It was vulgar. It was sexualized. It was orgiistic. The crowd was drunk, reveling in this, and Herod was so proud of his stepdaughter in her vulgar dance before he and his friends that he said to her, ask me what you want and I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. She comes back to her mother Herodias. Without batting an eye, Herodias says, put John the Baptist to death. John the Baptist had shamed them in his proclamation of the illegitimacy of their marriage and the vulgarity of it. Herodias' daughter returns to Herod, and Herod sends the executioner off and brings the head of John the Baptist before Herod. John the Baptist, first cousin of Jesus, and here we're told that Herod now appears before Jesus. Herod was excited, we're told, in verse 8. He was glad. He had long desired to see Jesus. He had heard about him. Of course he had heard about him. Everyone in the region had heard about Jesus. He fed 5,000 men. He healed those who were blind. He, he gave uh, the ability to walk again to those who were lame. He restored hearing. He cleansed the lepers. Of course everyone had heard about him. And Herod wanted to see a magic trick by this miracle worker, Jesus. We're told that in this questioning, Jesus stood absolutely silent before Herod Antipas. Not a word was spoken by Jesus. It is as though he is saying, I will not even dignify who you are by responding to you. We're told that Jesus, in giving the parable, said to not cast your pearl before the swine. And here he refused to do so. 
Herod and Pilate, we're told, became friends with each other this very day. Of course they did. They both shared the opinion that Jesus was not guilty. Neither of them wanted to deal with this. But what's interesting is you have two witnesses now. By Jewish law, everything was to be confirmed by two witnesses, at least, that Jesus was innocent. And yet still, he went to the cross. Still, he died. Can I share some words of hope with you this morning from this passage? If you will, come, come back into the, the text in chapter 22, verse 69. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Seated at the right hand of the power of God. We're told by the author of Hebrews that that is exactly where Jesus is. And we're told this beautiful statement as well. That what Jesus is doing there is he is interceding for his people. Can there be any greater joy, any greater hope, any greater comfort at moments like this than to know that Jesus is interceding for his people? That Jesus is praying for you as his child. That Jesus is praying for me. That in the midst of this, we would not lose hope. That the temptation to despair would not overcome us. The temptation to sin would not take hold within us. He is interceding for us. But also, remember the prophecy from Daniel concerning the Son of Man, that he has given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And let this bring hope and comfort to you at this moment, to recognize, to realize that this place is not our home. We are passing through this place on mission for God in what he seeks to do in our lives, for his glory, for our good. But friends, understand there is hope for followers of Christ that one day, just as Jesus has come to provide payment for sin, so he will come to fully redeem his people and bring us to himself. He is the Son of Man who has been given a kingdom. That's where we belong. That's where our citizenship lies. So be comforted. Be encouraged by this. And then finally, be reminded in this word of hope that Jesus is declared completely innocent. I find no guilt in this man, Pilate said. This was not a theological statement by Pilate, but it rings with theological truth. Jesus is a king with no sin, and with no guilt, because that's the kind of king we need. Because we do have sin, and we do have guilt. We need a king who can liberate us from that sin and from that guilt, and the only kind of king who can do that is the one who has not sinned and the one who is not guilty. And we have that king for us. The reason he's able to pay for my sin, the reason he's able to pay for your sin is because he had no sin of his own which required payment. Completely innocent, guiltless. And yet, as I say, we know 
how the events unfold. Jesus is eventually crucified in just a few short hours. We will read of Jesus hanging on the cross, dying in our place. Why? He's deemed to be innocent. But remember, Pilate and Herod are not in control. God is. This is part of his plan. And he even uses these pagan leaders to accomplish his plan. This is our greatest hope of all. That Jesus went to the cross because it was the plan of God for the salvation of souls. And today, I plead with you, I beg of you, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, to confess Him as Lord today, to acknowledge that He is Lord, and to ask that He would bring forgiveness and redemption to you. Call on the name of the Lord. Believe in your heart that God's raised Him from the dead. Trust in Him for salvation. I close with this passage of Scripture to remind you of why Jesus did what He did. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy set before him, salvation of souls, bringing glory to the Father. Have you trusted him? Is he Christ the King in your life? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you today that even though our frail feeble minds are incapable of understanding everything that took place here. Our hearts cry out, injustice, this is wrong. And yet, Father, our faith reminds us that this was all your plan. Even using ungodly means like the Sanhedrin, Pilate, Herod, It was all part of your plan from the beginning. And so, Father, we're greatly humbled today that you in your mercy and in your love would give your Son, Jesus, to die so that we might live. Father, I pray for those listening today that they would be able to say with assurance Yes, I have trusted in Christ as King and ruler of my life. My life gives evidence of that belief. 
Father, for those who cannot say that, I ask today, please, please, Father, through your Spirit, would you bring conviction of heart and soul? Would you open eyes? Would you remove blindness that those who are apart from Christ, lost in their sin and guilt, might in this moment, this day, call upon Jesus in belief and faith and be saved. For we ask it in His name. Amen. And now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God bless you.